Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm here at the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge. That's Natasha Loder, The Economist's health editor. Just standing by a sculpture of some metal doors with the letters A, C, T and G on them. They're here to commemorate a building that was here on the campus many years ago. A building where they first sequenced the first human chromosome, number 22. It was an important milestone in the Human Genome Project many years ago. A few weeks ago, Natasha went to the Wellcome Sanger Institute which is in the east of England, not far from Cambridge University. This facility was one of the key locations where parts of the very first human genome were sequenced. I'm here at the centre today to find out a bit about that illustrious past, but also to look forward to what we can expect from human genetics and medicine in the next 20 years. That illustrious past began in earnest in 1990. The Human Genome Project was set up to work out the order of the three billion or so pairs of building blocks that make up the code within every set of human chromosomes. These are, if you like, the instructions that create us. After a decade of intensive work around the world, in the year 2000, President Bill Clinton, along with Britain's Prime Minister Tony Blair, announced that a draft of the first human genome was ready. Genome science will have a real impact on all our lives, and even more, on the lives of our children. It will revolutionize the diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of most, if not all, human diseases. Three years later, almost exactly 20 years ago, the Human Genome Project was declared finished. That project not only provided a treasure trove of information for scientists, it actually transformed the study of biology. Pretty much all human biology research uses the Human Genome Project's reference genome in some way, from trying to understand why some people are more likely to develop diseases, like sickle cell or diabetes, to those people trying to understand our ancestors and human evolution more clearly. As for the real impact on all of our lives that President Clinton promised, though, well, much of that still lies ahead. The genomics revolution is well underway, but there's a lot more work to do for the knowledge from genomics to become part of everyday medicine. When will genomics start transforming lives? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science and technology editor. Today we're going from theory to practice. Two decades after the Human Genome Project was completed, we'll look at how scientists are moving genomics from the lab and into the clinic. In the coming years, genomic sequencing could be used widely as a diagnostic tool, paving the way for personalised medicines. We'll explore that future. 
now is the time for genomics to deliver on some of the kind of promises and expectations of the Human Genome Project and we've got a lot of the tools that we can use to do that now. That impact will actually be very much integrated almost into the way we think about medicine now and so it will not feel, I think, like a revolution. Joining me for today's show is The Economist health editor, Natasha Loder, who you heard at the top of the show. Hi, Natasha. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Very well. Lovely to be here. And also with us is Jeff Carr. Now, Jeff, how do I introduce you now? What's your title these My days? My title is Senior Editor for Science and Technology. But you could... Uh, how about our newly appointed... Our newly appointed Senior Editor yeah. for Science and Technology, which basically means you're, you're off travelling the world finding That's right, yes. ideas. Exactly, yes. Precisely, yes. So yes. If, if only we could all have jobs like that. Yes. Eh? Well, J- Jeff, thanks for joining us. Um, let's start with you on this conversation. You were there in the room 20 years ago when the draft of the Human Genome Project was announced. Just take me back to that moment. What was it like? Well, it was a bit of a rush for me, actually, because I'd agreed with the editor at uh, the last moment for reasons that I lost in the midst of time to write at very short notice a big extended essay about the Genome Project. And I finished it at two o'clock on the Monday of the announcement. And at three o'clock, I was doing Downing Street. So there was a taxi waiting for me outside. And it uh, it drove me there. And I got in and went through the security. And uh, there was a room full of uh, hacks and other associated people. And uh, also uh, Fred Sanger, who the Institute is named after, who was the man who built the first gene sequencing, DNA sequencing machine. Um, And John Salston, who was running the Sanger Centre at the time. They're both sadly dead now. But they were the, the leaders of the British arm of the Genome Project. And uh, we had a video link to the White House uh, so we could see President Clinton and Craig Ventron, uh, Francis Collins, shaking each other's hands through gritted teeth, so to speak, if that's not mixing a metaphor, because they were deadly rivals on this. Uh, Venter running the private version of the Genome Project and Collins being in charge of the official federally financed one. So uh, that announcement was made and Clinton gave a speech and Blair gave a speech and everybody was happy and uh, jolly. And I think some champagne was drunk, although I can't quite remember. And, it wouldn't uh, be unheard of for number 10 Downing Street. It would not be unheard of for number 10 Downing Street. Yeah. And, and, uh, and there was a feeling then in 2000 that uh, in some sense the Genome Project was completed. But of course it wasn't. Now, Natasha... It turns out you were also in the same room. Did you know that so you were in the same room until just now as, as Jeff uh, making that announcement? I did not. I did not. I was a very junior reporter at uh, Nature magazine and I got a call that day asking me to come to Downing Street. I don't think I got a taxi though. And it was an incredible moment of sort of real history and drama with both Tony Blair and uh, Bill Clinton speaking about this you know, very momentous occasion. Um, and I seem to remember the room was just rammed with journalists. I remember feeling quite sort of overwhelmed by it all. I don't remember champagne, I'll say that. Um. <laughs> I don't, science journalists like us don't normally get to go to 10 Downing Street or the White House for that matter. Was Indeed. It, was it a bit weird that, that this scientific announcement was being, was being made by the Prime Minister of Britain and the President of the United States? I think at the time, I just assumed it was because it was a moment of sort of great historical significance. But of course, I think looking back on it now, you can sort of see the political overtones in the way the announcement was done and orchestrated. And there were various things going on at the time, meaning not only was this a sort of 
international collaboration which both American and British researchers wanted to be seen to be playing a leading role in. Um, There was also this sort of dimension of the sort of corporate race with the publicly funded race, you know, where you had private company trying to complete the genome before the public sector did. So there there were all those sorts of dimensions there too. And it was a historic project and a historic thing, of course, because it was all about humans and we're always interested in our own biology. Now, Natasha, we heard from you at the Sanger Institute at the start of the show. Why did you go there? Well, if you want to find out about the past, present and future of the human genome, the place to go is Cambridge to the Sanger Institute. It's here you'll find people who've lived through the years or decades of discovery on human genetics that started way back, what, 20 years ago now. There wasn't a single burning question I wanted to get the answer to, but I really wanted to understand, you know, how has scientific interest in human genomics evolved? How do scientists look at it today? And what is it going to tell us about the human condition? Okay, well, that's a very good tease, Natasha. Let's pick up with you in the labs there. Just outside of Cambridge in the east of England, the Wellcome Sanger Institute is part of a large genomics centre It's like a large, pristine university campus. Its entire focus is genomics. In other words, using genetic information to improve our understanding of biology and human health. And the Sanger Institute is one of the world's most important facilities for research into the human genome. In fact, its DNA sequencing factory was responsible for about a third of the work needed to sequence the first human genome 20 years ago. I wanted to start by finding out how far that research has come since the Human Genome Project was first declared to be complete. So I spoke to Mike Stratton. Mike is the current boss of the Sanger. He's been at the helm for 13 years. I first started at uh, the then Sanger Centre. It was April 2000. And essentially we were in the final phase of the Human Genome Sequence. So it was an extraordinary time of a whirl of activity, a whirl of, you know, challenges and handling the data and a whirl of sort of communicating to the world the revolution that was about to be launched through the human genome sequence. I think we saw that it was going to have major implications for human genetics. In other words, for understanding how the differences between human beings that are transferred from parent to offspring, how that would influence our understanding of normality, the normal biology of the human being and in disease. And we also understood that throughout life, every cell in the human body, which has its own copy of the genome, would acquire mutations and we were going to understand what impact those mutations would have, particularly with respect to the disease process that we knew was due to those mutations occurring through life, that is cancer. So before the sequence had been drafted, when people went into the project, there were ideas about what human genetic information might look like. But actually, it turned out to be slightly different to how scientists had imagined. Can you just explain how that happened and what it was we learned? 
Well, I think we understood the overall structure of the human genome in that there were a number of genes and that they coded for proteins and the sequences of the genes that actually coded for proteins were a small proportion of the total amount of DNA in the human genome. And so that led to this discussion. There was a small component of the human genome that did the business and then that there was a large component, more than 90%, which was junk that filled in the gaps. One of the things that emerged pretty quickly was the number of genes. We thought on the basis of some back-of-the-envelope calculations that had been done years before that there may be 100,000 human genes. But it was a pretty airy estimate and nobody really knew. Nevertheless, that was a number that was bandied around. And um, as the reference genome was put together, their number seemed to be smaller than that. And indeed, the number of 20,000 emerged pretty quickly after the uh, the draft human genome was put together. So that 20,000 was itself controversial, but it's a pretty critical number. And, you know, young researchers working today think, well, how did you ever manage to do any sort of useful research on human biology when you didn't even know the number of moving parts in the human machine that there were? Well, we did. But nevertheless, knowing that there were 20,000 genes and therefore more or less 20,000 proteins, knowing that we had some information about very few of those, but a huge proportion of them that we knew nothing about, that was a good example of how the human genome changed our conceptions of working on human biology. Looking back, what do you think the main successes were of the Human Genome Project particularly during your time here? Well, I would say, first of all, that it's not quite the right question because the point about the human genome sequence is that essentially all of human biology research and human disease research today uses the human genome sequence in one form or another. And it has also kind of brought in a different way of doing biology. There's a lot of data. There are 3,000 million letters of code in one copy of the reference human genome sequence. That's vast amounts of data. And essentially, the human genome sequence and genomics generally brought in the age of large data into biology, which, of course, increasingly dominates biology today. So the impact of the human genome sequence is ubiquitous in the study of human biology. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much for inviting me to discuss with you. It's been great. Thank you. Mike led the Sanger through a really important period in the history of genomics. Today, the centre is at the heart of another critical bit of science. It's become one of the world's largest centres for understanding the genome of the coronavirus. One of every five SARS-CoV-2 genomes in the world was sequenced in Cambridge. Mike will be stepping down in May. So to understand the future of human genomics, I sat down with the Sanger's incoming boss, Matt Hurls. Hi, my name is Matt Hurls. I'm head of human genetics at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. And in May, I'll be taking over as director of the Institute. Can you tell me a little bit about the future of the Institute and perhaps what you think generally the role is of the Institute going forward now? I think where we are now in terms of the science gives us a sense of where we go forward. 
So in terms of rare genetic diseases where mutations in a single gene can be sufficient to cause disease, there are 20,000 genes in the genome. We know of about 4,000 of those genes that can cause those diseases. But for the majority of the other genes, we don't. So there's a lot more discovery to take place of individually very rare conditions that really require international collaboration because there may only be one patient in the country with that condition. And unless you find the other patient in another country with the same condition and the same DNA change, you're not going to be able to be conclusive that that's really the cause of their disease. So international collaboration in rare disease will continue to be really important. In common disease, there's been a complete transformation with the genome. In the early 2000s, we knew of maybe a handful, less than 10 pieces of our DNA that increased or decreased risk of any of the common diseases like type 2 diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or schizophrenia. And now we know of hundreds of thousands of those associations. So it's a complete transformation. And the key thing is that each one of those is potentially useful as a clue to how we might develop new drugs for those diseases. When you look at where we've come with human genetic information in everyday use today, what do you imagine we might be able to do 20 years from now? So 20 years from now, I think it'll be much more common, if not completely pervasive, that people will have their genome sequence. So we are seeing, for example, the Newborn Genomes Programme being run by Genomics England, which is trialling the sequencing of babies at birth, 100,000 of them, to see how that information can be useful in identifying early onset treatable conditions that we don't currently screen for, but also thinking about how is that genetic information used across that individual's life? You know, is it useful for predicting, for example, which drugs they'll respond well to or potentially have a severe adverse reaction to? Is it going to be useful for predicting their risk of later onset disorders and, and then thinking about who might benefit most from earlier screening or who might not need screening until much later in life? So I think there's a whole bunch of different ways in which genomic information will be used. I think it'll also be used in conjunction with other layers of multiomic information, it's sometimes called. And so I think increasingly we will see studies where we are much able to determine how to manage individuals by combining together DNA-level information, RNA-level information, protein-level information. And it won't be an either-or, but rather actually they each bring something different. So what about the technology now? What's the next frontier? The future is incredibly exciting and actually now is the time for genomics to deliver on some of the kind of promises and expectations of the Human Genome Project and we've got a lot of the tools that we can use to do that now. So what we're doing is what we call saturation mutagenesis where you basically work out what every single variant in a gene does. At the moment we have a kind of gene-based view of function. We know if gene X is involved in disease Y but there's thousands of possible genetic variants in gene X and the fact that we don't know what 95% of those But how would you do. find out? So we've got some really cool tools now that allow us to essentially engineer every single possible variant in a gene in essentially a library of millions of cells, each cell of which has a different mutation. And we can use cellular assays to read out which are the damaging mutations and which aren't. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. All of that genomic information is stored securely on site. 
and it really is a lot of data. The human genome consists of about 3 billion base pairs of DNA. That's a very, very long sequence of code. And that's just for one person. We'll go into the blue room, please. So, yeah, we'll go into here. We'll just to get a sense of the scale of the storage involved, Matthew Davies, an engineer at the data center, took me to his state-of-the-art facility. This is where it gets rather noisy. noisy in here so it's not the best place for holding conversations but as you can hear there's a lot of equipment running in this room you can hear the fans running that's largely all the servers they are generating quite a lot of energy usage and they generate quite a lot of heat with that so we then have the added effect of trying to remove that heat and you'll see there's vents in the floor which are giving out cooling air and then there's extraction above the racks which takes away the hot air and then it's circulated through these contraptions behind you to actually cool everything down. So it's um, quite a major operation to keep the place at a stable temperature. The hall is stacked floor to ceiling with servers locked in boxes, cables connecting computers together and flickering lights. And there are four large halls like this. And together, these are a global engine of genomics research. In the corridor, just outside one of the data centers, Toby Titchmarsh told me just how much data is being stored on the campus. Uh, we have over excess of 100 petabytes of storage, so that's obviously a large amount of storage compared to how much you'd have on a standard personal computer. And um, a petabyte, can you give me an idea of how big a petabyte is? So a petabyte is 1,000 terabytes. So we have 100 of those, so we have excess of 100,000 terabytes of storage. It does vary because we bring in and take out servers from time to time. But yeah, so a, a standard computer at home, you might have maybe 500 gigabytes a terabyte. So it, it's quite a lot. There are challenges ahead as more genomics data is gathered and more sophisticated computing and processing and data crunching is needed. One of the challenges is simply that storage takes up a lot of space, so they're working to find more efficient ways of storing data. We're seeing an increasing movement for new equipment to become water-cooled, so we're going to start to move into a different type of data centre where we're going to see liquids pumped around for cooling rather than air. So rather than all this noise that you've got, it's going to be nice quiet humming rooms that are just going to have liquids pumped around. It gives us an opportunity to have a lot more density of equipment and density is great because it means we can squeeze more equipment into the same space, we can cool that space easier, it's more directed. So rather than trying to cool a room, we're trying to cool the actual chipsets and the actual equipment itself. So things are changing. And um, what are you going to do with all the hot water? Uh, that's an interesting one because obviously energy is a major issue at the moment. The costs of running an establishment like this have increased massively and because of that we're trying to look at reuse options. So reuse options can be all number of things, be it building heating, providing options for generating electricity. There's all manner of different ways of doing it. Free air cooling is looked at for actually using outside cool air to try and cool rooms and efficiency is the real thing with data centres now, absolutely. But it, clearly within 20 years, it'll be a different sort of place. Completely, completely, yeah. I'm far more efficient. I'm probably smaller for the amount of compute we've got. Oh. 
Some of the data that's stored on the Genomics Campus is used by an organisation known as EMBL EBI. That's the European Bioinformatics Institute. It's just across the campus from the Sanger Institute. To understand exactly what they use this bioinformation for, I spoke to the Institute's boss, Ewan Burney. There have been days when, if you just were watching the internet traffic leave the United Kingdom, we were the single biggest contributor to information leaving the United Kingdom on days when we get heavily used at the EBI. That just shows how much researchers and, of course, increasingly healthcare use our information in different ways. Ewan's been working on the campus for more than 25 years, and he played a pivotal role in one of the big discoveries since the completion of the Human Genome Project. That's the so-called junk DNA isn't really junk after all. Junk DNA is it was sort of throwaway comment by Sidney Brenner. It's not a very good way of describing what is going on. Why is the word junk DNA an unhelpful term? <laughs> junk DNA sort of conjures stuff which you can discard or perhaps should discard. And it is just a more complicated story than that analogy makes up. Quite a lot of the DNA in our genome is due to the action of these genomic parasites, which get called different things, repeats or transposons or or other things. And these are things which copy themselves around genomes quite happily. Every genome comes along with a machinery to suppress and, and handle that. And most genomes is a sort of scattered battlefield between the host genome and these genomic parasites. And in amongst all of this sort of battlefield, there are genes, protein coding genes, and then other things that switch genes on and off and do all sorts of other things about keeping the genome whole and safe in in different ways. And so you really need to understand all of this to understand how a genome works and encodes an organism. And that includes this kind of battlefield of where the parasites are now, as it were, and we do have them active in our genome, but also you kind of have them frozen in time over previous periods. There's been some really odd things that have happened due to the action of this kind of war between the host genome and these parasites. Now, labelling all of that as junk, I don't think helps this complicated story. If I could wave a magic wand and allow you to rename it, what would you call it? I I just call it the, the genome, the whole genome. Um, that you know, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, you don't need to wave a magic wand. I'm, I'm quite happy calling it the whole genome. <laughs> looking a little bit more at the translation of this information, from a patient perspective, what do you think genomic medicine is going to look like over the next 20 years? Well, I think we can start with what it looks like now in some of the leading countries. One of them is the UK. There are a number of other, actually mainly Northern European countries that are heading absolutely in the same direction. Now, today, if there is a clinician who has a patient they think has a potential disease of a certain number of classes, these rare genetic diseases, in aggregate, there are quite a few people. It's about 2% of children. And the clinician can schedule that child to have their genome sequence and also their parents' genomes, because the parents' genomes, when compared to the child, is really informative of what's going on. 
And for those 2% of children where people do get their genome, about 30% of the time, there's an accurate diagnosis that comes out at the end. And then from those accurate diagnoses, on occasion, there are absolutely transformative cures. And the one which I often go back to is there's a certain type of blindness caused by mutations in a certain gene, RPE65. And we can now treat those children with a gene therapy injection behind their retina. And those children no longer go blind. That's 30 children a year. But those therapies are going to be, we think, extended to more genes in the future. And then it's not just blindness, but there are some other areas that we can tackle with these techniques in the future. So that's happening now. We don't need to talk about the future. It is a, it's a now thing. And when we start thinking about collecting genomic data on a more routine basis, we can do things to work out people's risk of different diseases. Is that right? Yes. So this would be the next area, and that is a bit more futuristic, but perhaps not that far away. There are diseases such as a heart attack or type 2 diabetes, which really are these chronic diseases where you sort of slide into it over many, many years. And we've long known that it's a combination of your lifestyle, your choices, your environment, and your genetics. And the question is, is now, can we use this genetics in an informative way? And again, in Finland, in the UK, in Estonia, they're trialing, adding in genetics to understand the risk. Now, what that really means in practice is, when does a particular person get recommended to go on to statins when a certain medical procedures activated on the trajectory of type 2 diabetes. It's a hot scientific debate. I mean, it's, it's complicated. And I think it will have quite a bit of impact over the coming years. But that impact will actually be sort of very much integrated almost into the way we think about medicine now. And so it will not feel, I think, like a revolution. It will feel like just better statin prescription criteria or better breast cancer screening qualification or better metformin or lifestyle recommendations for type 2 diabetes. That's where practice changes by using this information. Consumer genetic firms are quite common these days. What are your thoughts on the products that are out there at the moment and how these might change in the future? Yes, this uh, you discover how much Viking you are and this sort of thing as well as these other things, yeah. So there's lots of ways of answering this question and the fun way is an analogy with x-rays. So when the person who discovered x-rays by chance saw his wife's hand on the x-ray film, the, the very next day he wrote, there will be medical applications for this technology. In fact, the first people to pick this up were not medics. They were fairground owners, in particular in northeast America, or the eastern seaboard of America. And you could go and get your picture taken of your own skeleton. And often you would hang that in your dining room and people would come in and they would go, ooh, look, you've got a skeleton hanging as a picture there. You know, what is that? And you say, well, that's not any skeleton. That's my skeleton. And it would be a kind of conversation piece. And um, 
I do feel part of this consumer testing, some motivation is very similar to that. Oh, I am 50% Viking and 3% Jewish and something else. And I've done this and it's kind of interesting. I'm also a researcher and I know that this is sort of enlightened storytelling. I mean, it's not disconnected from reality, but it's much more complicated than that. You know, what is a Viking? You can get yourself into all sorts of weird and wonderful conversations. And actually, when you dig under the hood, it's really storytelling. It's really the same thing as bone portraiture in the late 19th century. Thank you so much, Ewan, for that fascinating interview and insight into the future. Thank you. Reflecting on the state of the human genome with Ewan, with Matt and Mike at this Historic Institute was fascinating. But before I left the campus, I returned to that monument in an unassuming, seemingly empty field. It's been a long and really exciting day at the Welcome Genome Campus. And I'm back where I started, just by these metal gates with the chromosome 22 written in letters behind me. And I suppose I'm remembering back to when I was a very young reporter and the great excitement, actually, of this sequencing of the human genome for the first time. And what we thought at the time was it would be quite a simple matter, I think, to translate the information from the human genome into applications and medicines. And that path has been long and far more complicated than perhaps we realised then. And I think one of the most exciting things I've learned today is the idea that we can just integrate genetic data with how we treat people routinely within the health system. And the idea that someone perhaps could go and get their mammography 10 or 20 years earlier than someone else because they have an inherent genetic risk written in lots and lots of different genes, not just one or two, or, for example, go on statins early, whereas other people might wait much longer to take those drugs. It's really it's fascinating, and I'm really excited to see how that moves forward in the future. We'll hear more from Natasha shortly. But first, if you already subscribe to The Economist, you can read more about all of the clever biology that scientists have learned from the Human Genome Project. Find those articles at The Economist website or on our app. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can access all those pieces by taking out a subscription to The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer to get your first month for free. The link is in the show notes. Next, I'll be joined by my colleagues from The Economist who've been following the story of the human genome from day one. They'll tell us what they've learned and what surprised them the most in the past 20 years. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hold up. 
Today on Babbage, we're exploring the human genome, more than 20 years after the Human Genome Project was declared to be completed. I'm joined once again by The Economist's Natasha Loder and Jeff Carr. Jeff, we heard Natasha at the Sanger Institute putting all of this biology into the healthcare context. But tell me, what's been the biggest surprise for you in the past 20 years since the completion of the human genome? Well, the very biggest surprise for me was when we started looking at the genomes of extinct human species, because you can extract DNA from fossil uh, bones as long as uh, they've been reasonably well preserved and aren't too old. And uh, people started looking at the DNA of Neanderthals and also discovered entirely through genomics a second fossil species called the Denisovas, which are separate from the Neanderthals and um, had not been recognised before. But uh, when their genomes were sequenced, they were seen to be different. Now, that's interesting in itself. But what was really interesting is if you then look at the DNA of modern human beings in Europe and Asia, they have... DNA in them from these uh, now extinct species of humans. So a lot of Asian and European human beings are actually hybrids. And uh, that is quite a thought. It's opened up an entire new sort of branch of science. In fact, one of the Nobel Prizes recently was given for this understanding of our of the human sort of tree of life becoming ever more complicated, essentially. Um, and Natasha, I almost feel silly asking you this question as a health and medical uh, journalist. What's the Human Genome Project ever done for medicine? Well, I mean, the Human Genome Project touches every element of modern medicine and it's hard to even imagine biological research medical research without it and it's become so foundational that it's sort of like asking a fish what they think of water and that's what makes it so hard to answer that question what's it ever done I mean you could sort of enumerate it and sort of say well we have new cancer medicines and we can start to treat genetic diseases and we can start to understand how high cholesterol happens I mean there's an endless list of things that I could rattle off but we're sort of living in the age of genomics and so it's sort of like asking what the transistor's ever done for us (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And and Jeff, I suppose one interesting factor from the last 20 years of genomics has been that the genome of humans and everything else, to be honest, is much more complex than anyone ever thought 23 years ago. Um, The way it operates, the way it encodes for things, what junk or other things are in the DNA. I mean, it's a much more complicated science than anyone could have imagined. That's absolutely right, yes. Um, we knew when the project started, it was known that only a small fraction, it was reckoned to be somewhere between 2 and 4% of the genome, was encoding proteins, which is what everybody thinks that genes do. That's what everyone was interested in. Yeah, and that's what they were interested in, exactly, yes. Um, so they, we, they knew that at the beginning. There was, there was no doubt about that, and that, that has proved to be the case. But nobody knew that much about what the rest of the genome got up to. And we've now discovered a lot more since then. So the first thing we discovered is that there are far fewer protein coding genes than people thought at the beginning. The number is about 20,000. So that was the first thing. Uh, second thing was that we found, so you'll have to excuse me for going a little bit of um, molecular biology here, but what genes actually do is produce a molecule called RNA, and that RNA is then translated into proteins. So there is an intermediate. What we found is that there are a lot more jobs that RNA do. There are a lot of genes 
scenes which were not perceived at all at the beginning of the project because they were nothing to do with directly with making proteins. And they tend to be quite a lot shorter, these RNA molecules, but they do all sorts of other jobs, mostly to do with regulating the genome and with splicing together bits of other RNA and all sorts of things. So uh, although there are only 20,000 protein coding genes, there are many thousands more of these, and we don't really know how many thousands more yet. And the third is that we can now see the structure of the junk much better. And some of it is genes that have been abandoned by evolution on the way through. But an awful lot of it uh, is composed of things called transposons, which are capable of copying themselves and, and moving around in the DNA, although not all of them can do that. They look parasitic, but it's very unlikely that there will be so many of them if they weren't doing something useful. Nobody really knows what useful thing they do do. All right, well, clearly there's a lot to understand about the molecular biology of DNA still, uh, which, which is going to go on for many decades. Natasha, what do you think are the limitations, have, have been the limitations of the project, and where do you think it's going to go next in terms of trying to understand further? Well, what we've learned is that because there are a small number of genes, we don't just find one gene for one disease. And in fact a whole array of genes may contribute in a very tiny way to the development of a lot of diseases. That doesn't mean that it's not useful finding them or understanding how they work because they often give you clues. And I think the the next 20 years is going to be about synthesizing all the information that we have learned and are still learning about the human genome alongside with knowledge about environmental influences and delivering a much more sort of personalised form of medicine. And we're going to need a lot of information technology in order to make this happen. AI is going to be driving it all. And so sort of the, the medicine that I see 20 years from now will be very much about an AI that will monitor your health records, will assimilate information about your genetics and give much more personalised both predictions for how to stay well and what sort of sicknesses you might get, but also treatment options when you do get sick. So that's how it's going to unravel, I think. Do you know what we haven't discussed is the important role the physicists have played in all of this in creating the technology to sequence genomes, the IT infrastructure, the computing, all of these things. I mean, basically, it's a physics exercise, isn't it? Isn't it, Jeff? No, it's chemistry exercise. <laughs> <laughs> it's chemistry it's and IT. It's all physics. It's no, all no, 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 you're not getting away with that one. It's all I mean, physics. The, underneath. The, uh, the, the sequencing was, was chemistry. Sorry, oh. Natasha, you're keen to say something. Yeah, no, it's biology. Oh my God. <laughs> all right. Well, with that thought about the importance of physics and all of this, uh, let's end things there. <laughs> Natasha, Jeff, it's been a pleasure to talk to you both. Uh, thank you both for joining me. Uh, thank you, Alec. Thank you, Alec. And it's biology. <laughs> physics. <laughs> Our thanks also to Mike Stratton, Matt Hurls, Matthew Davis, Toby Titchmarsh, and Ewan Burney. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Make sure you go and check out our recent episode from the International Human Genome Editing Summit. That was on March the 8th, which covered some treatments and ethical dilemmas around gene editing. Or you can dive deeper into our back catalogue to explore the power of gene therapy and also an explainer on genomic sequencing. We published those episodes last year. 
Finally, if you've made it this far, then you're probably into podcasting. So why not come and work with us? We're hiring for an assistant producer to work on the Babbage team. Find out more in the show notes for this episode. Babbage will be back next week, but I won't be around. So my colleague Kenneth Kukier will be taking the reins. I'll return in a couple of weeks. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.